Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, with Pastor John King. Greetings. Earthly kind of like that. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19, just a little bit of Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 19, verse 11 is where we're going to start today. While you're turning there, um, you know, we've been learning much about trusting faith here lately. We've been in the book of Daniel, as you know, and we've seen the trials faced by Daniel and his companions. And last week we were reminded of the trusting faith of a virgin whose name was Mary. When the angel Gabriel appears and announces the birth of Christ, and she encounters the divine supernatural in a way that no other woman has before or after. This humble young teenager was willing to embrace the role she would play in bringing the baby Jesus into the world. And it's a wonderful celebration of Christmas that's been happening, you know, for the last 2,000 years. And we just celebrated ourselves. We had so many of us had a wonderful time of celebration, all because of the biblical, pro biblical promises that were fulfilled. You know, that's the whole reason we celebrate, because all the things that they were talking about from the Old Testament right into the coming of Jesus the first time had all been fulfilled at his birth. It's known as the first advent or the first coming of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Concerning him and his arrival, the Bible records his incarnation, God with us, you know, Emmanuel. He became flesh and he actually dwelt among mankind. And there were actually a series of events, starting with the anticipation of his coming, the fulfillment at his birth, his redemptive act on the cross, his kindness and mercy extended to all who believe in him, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father right now where he sits. In fact, he's the only one worthy to open the scrolls of judgment in the coming days uh, in the end times that would bring judgment upon the earth. Well, today we're going to look at the return of the king, if you will, Jesus' second coming. In a similar sense as his first coming, it will be a series of events. Right now, the church is in the anticipation phase. We're waiting for the Lord to call his church. We believe his coming is at hand when he calls his bride at the rapture of the church. And then there will be a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation, which will culminate in the glorious return, and he sets up his earthly kingdom here on earth. Just as there are multiple biblical prophecies in the biblical record of his first coming, we have even more prophetic scriptures concerning his second coming. The Bible contains more references to his second coming than the first by a ratio of nearly eight to one. Scholars count 1,845 references to his second coming. That includes 318 in the New Testament. Seven out of every ten New Testament chapters refer to his return. And Jesus himself mentioned it 21 times. In fact, 
during the new, in the New Testament, Jesus, the angels who were present at his ascension from the Mount of Olives, and John the Apostle, the one who wrote the book we're going to be studying today, all announced his second coming. In the book of Acts, it says, uh, when they, at his ascension, the angels were standing there. They, were, they told the disciples, they said, uh, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up at heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go into the heaven. In Revelation 1.7, John writes, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Amen. And one of the last words we see in Revelation 22.20, or at the end of the Bible, it says, He who testifies of these things, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord. So let's read our passage. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of people who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he would deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Heavenly Father, uh, 
Settle our hearts for your word, Lord. Open our minds to be renewed by your word and by the truth that it contains, Father. We ask that only you would be brought to bear here on our hearts, Lord God. Not a personality or a person, but that you would be brought to bear for us to understand you deeper and clearer and understand this truth. And may it cause us to react in a way that you desire, Lord God whether it's repentance unto salvation, whether it's simply just to you know, remember our calling and our need to get your word out, to tell others about you. Whatever it is that you want to accomplish through these words today, Lord, we pray and I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, we humbly sit before you and we seek your wisdom, which goes beyond all knowledge. Bless our time together, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So here we have the return of the king. You know, you guys, some of you who know me, you know that I'm kind of a J.R.R. Tolkien fan. You know, I like the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king. And you have that one movie uh, in the return of the king, that great scene where that great battle's taking place, you know. And all the, the, the foes are, are finally vanquished. And it's such a, a kind of a cool... Uh, motif, okay, it's not scripture, it's a motif of Christian scripture. Often people believe it's a motif of these end times. So if you have time over the holidays while it's quiet and you're like me, you'll try and find some time to watch that trilogy again like I do every year, usually by myself. So anyway, uh, so here we are. Um, just sharing a little, <laughs> sharing a little with you. It's okay. Uh, Margaret watches Hallmark by herself a lot, so uh, that uh, makes me a bad husband. When's that retreat? When's that marriage retreat? I think we're going to watch Hallmark movies at the marriage retreat together, and it's going to it's going to tame guys like me. So anyway, um, but look here in verse eleven. It's, we we kind of just start abruptly. You know, we're coming right into chapter nineteen. A lot of stuffs happened. Uh, before in the book of Revelation. Some of you have been a part of our midweek study of the end times, which we're, I think, in week 27. When we come back after the first of the year, we will finish it up. But uh, it says here, now I, was, uh, I saw heaven open. This is John writing. He says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. John the Revelator, now this isn't the first time that he saw heaven opened, okay? In Revelation 4.1, he says, you know, we, we read, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So he's, he's receiving a vision of future prophecy. John was invited to see through several visions, if you will, of the end times prophesied throughout the Bible. Mostly the events of the 70th week of Daniel. And you know, when we get back after next year, we'll be back in the book of Daniel, back in that great prophetic scripture. So this is sort of a, you know, a, to whet your appetite for things to come. But you have the 70th week of Daniel known as the Great Tribulation. And during that time, you'll have the emergence of the Antichrist, you know, that, that son of perdition who will be revealed. You'll also have, have the false prophet who will come, come about and they'll set up their one world government, one world religion, and their ability uh, will be given to them to be able to persecute the Jewish and Gentile tribulation saints. 
Those who have not been taken out of the earth have been removed from uh, either through the rapture or from actually from your graves if you've already died. If you're a Christian, Jesus is going to call his church to him in the air. But during this time, God unleashes his wrath on the world through a cycle of sevens. You have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. And at the beginning of the second half of the tribulation, right at the three and a half year mark, Satan himself, the dragon, will have been cast out. He'll be kicked out of heaven from now on. He will no longer be able to accuse God's people at heaven's throne, which is what he presently does, okay? He presently stands before God and looks to accuse you and I for all kinds of things. And if we're covered in the blood of Jesus, God doesn't see any of our sin. Praise God and hallelujah for that. But he's going to get kicked out of heaven. And eventually he's going to actually get kicked out of earth. We'll see that at the end. Once and for all. But now he's unable to do what he loves to do, and that's stir up trouble and accuse the saints. And so he's going to seek to persecute the Jewish people. Why? Because of his hatred for the nation. Why? Because the nation brought forth the Messiah. You see, we just, we're, we're, we're celebrating Christmas, uh, and we talked about the nation Israel would bring forth a son, a child would be born. And that is God's plan. And remember, Satan is always trying to stop God's plan from working. And so he seeks to persecute the Jewish people, his hatred for the nation that brought forth the Messiah. He is bent on destroying the Jews to prevent fulfillment of Israel's role in prophecy when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. We know that he can't stop it. And so here we are, we're at the final showdown between God and the forces of evil, the return of the king. And he says, I behold, I saw him on a white horse. Now, if you've been studying the book of Revelation, you know that this is the second white horse that's mentioned. In Revelation 6-2, John writes, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering to conquer. This was the Antichrist. This is not Jesus the Christ, okay? Uh, Chuck Swindoll says this about that verse, describing that first mention of a white horse in Revelation. He says, When Jesus opened the first seal of the seven-sealed scroll, a white horse leaped forth. Revelation 6.2. We identified its rider as falsehood personified, the deceptive and wicked theocracy established by the Antichrist. That first rider was given a bow and a crown. The, the crown would be called a Stephanos. Stephanos is the word, how you would pronounce it, I believe. That's called a, a the Stephanos is a victor's crown. And he set out to conquer the world. And in his wake followed warfare, famine, and death. That's the, that's the story of what's going on in the tribulation. You know, you have multitudes of people who die and natural disasters and all kinds of crazy stuff that's not happened yet, but it's coming. And so we have, now we're back to our text today, and now we're talking about this second white horse, and he, and this is Jesus, who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Notice his name description, Faithful and True. Jesus is not named directly at this point. John uses descriptive words, much like we've seen in describing Jesus in his first and second coming. 
Advent season, okay? We, this is Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6. We've been saying it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, a child, he came as a child, but he was already a son. He was already God, and he was incarnate. And it says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, not yet. Not yet. That's what we're talking about today. But when Isaiah wrote it, he was writing about both his first and second coming all at once. All at once, he was talking about Jesus' first and second coming. And the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, some of those attributes we receive from Jesus now. He is a wonderful counselor. His wisdom goes beyond all knowledge, and we rely on it all the time. He is a mighty God because he's defeated sin, and we know that he paid the price on the cross for us. And he gives us the ability to defeat sin ourselves. But notice this one sitting on the horse, he's faithful and true. Faithful and true. He's trusted and reliable. He's genuine as to as to opposed or excuse me as opposed to what is imperfect, what is defective and what is uncertain. And we certainly have a lot of that. Whenever we put our all of our marbles into a man or a government or a system, it's imperfect, it's defective. And it's very uncertain, very uncertain. But Jesus is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. And his word says he is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now this is not the baby Jesus that came to make peace on earth, to bring peace on earth. That's what he's doing now. But when he comes the second time, he comes and judges in righteousness Perfect judgment. Perfect righteousness. And guess what? He also makes war. He makes war. And we read that in our, in our passage. True and perfect righteousness that belongs to God. And he applies it to what? Well, he judges or he pronounces who is right and who is wrong. Who has the authority to pronounce right and wrong without making any mistake whatsoever? Well, that's God. That's God who does. But notice he makes war. In other words, he fights because he is coming as the lion of Judah. And he fights. Now think of the contrast of his first coming. Uh, a guy named George MacDonald wrote this very simple little poem. He says, They all were looking for a king to slay their foes and to lift them high. Thou camest a little baby thing they made a woman cry. You see, that was what they were, they were hoping for. Uh, J. Vernon McGee writes this. He says, That is the way Jesus entered the world the first time as a baby. He was meek and lowly. He was the Savior who died for sinners. Now in the verses before us, we see him coming in his great glory. This will be the final manifestation of his wrath upon a sinful world. The rebellion of Satan demons, and men is contained. It's going to be put down. It's going to be judged. He puts down all unrighteousness before he establishes his kingdom in righteousness. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. Referring to Jesus' second coming. There you have it before you. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As he fights in the day of battle, 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it towards the south. So the same, as we've said a couple weeks ago, the same mountain that he ascended into heaven from, he will come down and he will actually split. There will be a geographical change, a supernatural change when he arrives in his great glory. In verse 12, we see his appearance. John describes his appearance. He says, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. His eyes, his gaze Excuse me, his gaze pierces through any facade. Even now, even though we can't see him. When you get before the Lord in prayer, when, you, when your conscience works with the Holy Spirit to bring you into repentance, and you try to fake it with God, he sees right through us. His gaze pierces through any facade and sees the heart and motives of nations and individuals. But when he comes this time, he will judge them for what they really are. This should make us very so grateful for the grace that God gives us now. And it should make us want to make him widely known, just like he was made widely known the night that he was born and the shepherds received a, a concert from heaven. It says he will have many crowns, uh, diadema, this is plural for diadem. It's representing his sovereign authority above all earthly kings. He will have ultimate sovereign rule over every inch of the planet, we've been saying. This was shown to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel's dream and other prophets. It will be a perfect theocracy. He will be an undisputed monarch. One writer put it this way, reminding us, you know, where we stand today. He said, the last time we saw, the last time this earth, the last time this earth saw Jesus, he wore a crown of thorns, but not in Revelation 19. Now he wears many crowns. The ancient Greek word used for crowns here is the diadema. This is the crown of royalty and authority, not the Stephanos, which was the crown of achievement that we talked about earlier. This now is the crown of royalty and authority. And notice, not only were his eyes like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns, but he had a name written that no one knew except himself. A secret name, if you will. In Revelation 2.17, Jesus, promise, Jesus promises all believers that they will receive a white stone with a new name on it for each person that no one else knows, even though we don't know that name now. Here, here's the thing. We, we've talked about this recently. Think of your life and the people you've known through your life. Think of the friendships and relationships you've had. Think of how, you know, over the course of time, you get to know one another more and more and better and better. And unfortunately, because of our sinful nature and things that happen, circumstances that can happen, if we're not careful to apply the love and the grace that God's applied to us, relationships can tend to wear out, right? They can be, you know, that was an old friend. And, and, and so we can, we can go through life with many regrets for many situations that happen from old friendships that didn't work out because the flesh was involved for whatever reason, whatever you're, whether you see yourself as the victim in the situation or whether you see yourself as the one who's done wrong to cause a problem with people. 
And that's why marriage can be so difficult, right? Because we made this covenant to stay together. And unless we're committed to one another in love and marriage and filled with the Holy Spirit as Christians, you know, it, it, it can go, it can be very, very difficult day in and day out. But think about how it's going to be. As sad as that is, and the truth of the matter is that it is sad, think of the joy that does lie ahead for everyone. You know, you and I are going to spend eternity not, getting, not just getting to know each other in a perfect sense, okay, with, with full knowledge and full understanding, because most of what we are only God sees, okay, let's be honest. But it, it's going to be, everything's going to be out in the open in heaven. And we will spend eternity getting to know Jesus, but we'll be doing it in a heavenly environment so there'll be no sin. And we'll be spending eternity, you know, just, uh, just coming to know the glories and the wonders of our Savior, and that's an amazing future. When you think of heaven, you know, t- we tend to think of, you know, we're all going to sit and stand like we did on uh, Christmas Eve. We're going to sit and stand, sit and stand, wear people out, right? It's not going to be like that in heaven. Anyway, back to our text in verse 13. He was clothed. He, you know, again, he had eyes of fire. He had many crowns. He had a name written, but he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, scholars point out that the bloody robe symbolizes either one of two things, if you want to get picky about it. Neither one matters, actually. But uh, one, one thought is that the robe dipped in blood, that the blood was Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Revelation 5.12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. They, they, they say that the blood on his robe was that. And then others was the fact that Jesus has come and he is now exercising judgment. Uh, Isaiah 63.3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. And I tend to lean towards the latter. Of course, the first one is true, but I tend to lean towards the fact that Jesus' appearance here on a white horse is because he's executing judgment. And notice his name was called the Word of God. So again, John uses this imagery. Instead of naming him directly, he uses these words that describe his person and his character and what he does. The Word of God, the true revelation of Jesus Christ, the person and not just the prophecy of it. The Word of God is mentioned by John. He's the same author who wrote the Gospel according to John. And you're familiar with the verse that it says, John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here we have the Word of God uh, being called, you know, his, one of his names, the Word of God, his physical and his personal presence right there on that battlefield in that day in the future. And now, now notice in verse 14 that the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven. Who are they? Well, I believe that they are both the army of saints and the angels. The armies of saints and the angels. 
2 Thessalonians 1 7, it says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So you and I, uh, if, you know, if you have become a Christian in your lifetime and then you're either raptured or you die beforehand, well guess what? You're gonna, not only are you going to go to meet the Lord in the air, but you're going to come back and accompany him in the air to this final battle. The book of Jude is very interesting. It contains a verse, Jude 1, verses 14 and 15. Notice it says, Now Enoch, okay, now we're going way back now, okay? Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Look what he says. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all, their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, this, is the, this final arrival is when things have changed for eternity and forever. There's no longer a chance to repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're still standing in that day and you find your way, if you're alive during the tribulation and you find your way alive and seeing the Lord in the air, terrible things if you're not a believer, if you're not a tribulation saint, if you haven't received, because at this point, the line has been drawn. And they will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed on white horses. So your battle dress, your battle dress... Hey, folks. Hey, morning. <laughs> Welcome. We're in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. So as they, as they appear, the armies in heaven, that's you and I again, and the saints that have followed with them, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now that doesn't sound like battle dress, does it? I mean, that's not the type of battle dress that we would normally see uh, warriors who were getting ready to shed blood uh, carry. And it doesn't even mention any, any armor or weapons. And there's a great reason for that, because in verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that he should strike the nations. Here we see the power of his word coming out of his mouth. You guys recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was evident there in the Garden of Gethsemane that when Jesus replied, when they said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus of Nazareth I believe they said. And he replied, he said, I am he. And to the officers and from the chief priests of the Pharisees. They were the ones asking when they came to get him in, in uh, John's account. And they drew back and they fell on the ground. Now the power of his word would have been so mighty, he could have just kept saying, I am he, I am he, and drove them all away. Just the power of his word. But he was going to do the Father's will. But here we see him on his return. And again, he comes as a warrior. 
He comes with a sharp sword. In other words, it's swift and it's quick and it's a large sword. And he will strike, or King James Version, he will smite with a deadly blow. Who? The nations. The writer of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, asked the question. He said, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Because you, you know, if, you're, if you're looking at this situation and Jesus has just returned and tens and thousands of his angels and, and saints have returned, yet stiff-necked people still want to resist him. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why would people continue to be so stubborn? So he comes with a sharp sword, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. This is a totally different appearance uh, than we saw at Jesus' first coming. Psalms 2.9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And then it goes on and refers to how he got the blood on his robe. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. To tread the winepress is to trample or to crush with feet, referring to the old method of making wine as they crush the grapes in that big vat. But he's doing it in anger. This word fierceness means a glowing, a hot anger from God. And he's doing it with great wrath. You see, God's anger is no longer going to be postponed. And we talk about it. He's withholding it because of the, you know, the church and because of the, the desire of God for all to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But there will come a time when his anger and his wrath will no longer be postponed. Now notice in verse 16 that he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is his rank insignia, if you will. For those of you who have military background, think of the highest ranking generals, okay? For, for military historians in America, you know that the highest ranking general of all time in the United States was a General George Washington. He was the first general. The second highest ranking general of all time was General Pershing. He was the highest rank. He was the general of the armies, okay, in World War I. And then, of course, we know in World War II, you had MacArthur, you had admirals, you had a lot of five-star generals. Well, here we have uh, Jesus, his rank insignia. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, meaning there are none above him. Remember, we referred to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 recently. Uh, coming into Christmas, we said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, praise God. And the government will be on his shoulder. It wasn't then, but it will be. So you go back and forth in that prophecy between his first and second coming. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But notice, verse 7, and the increase of his government. You see, he didn't have a government the first time. But his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is what he's come to do in his second coming. He's going to set up his government. 
Chuck Swindoll writes this. He says, in the Old Testament, the title King of Kings refers to the supreme earthly king. The title Lord of Lords refers to God himself as the supreme divine Lord. In the New Testament, Paul applies this title to God, the only sovereign. And John applies it to Jesus Christ, the case for the full deity and complete humanity of Christ, with accompanying authority over both heaven and earth, could not be more clear. Jesus Christ is king over all who call themselves king, and Lord above all who call themselves Lord. Next we see in verses 17 through 21, the fowls and the foes of heaven gathering. The fowl, you guys saw that movie, The Birds, right? You guys familiar with that movie, The Birds? Think of that, think of that in, a, in a supernatural sense, really. But in a real sense, a true sense. He says in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, you know, be the, the earthly heaven, the skies, this midst of heaven would be the highest point in the heavens, the sun, where the sun is at high noon, if you will. So that everybody can see what's going on. So you have this heavenly army above the earth, and you have this earthly army below the earth. And it says to the birds, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Meet us there. Where? Where is he going to meet them? If you follow Revelation and you know your end times prophecy and you know the book of Revelation, you'll see in Revelation 16, verses 14 through 16. It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And notice verse 16. And they gathered them together at a place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Armageddon. If you look at a map and you can Google uh, the Mount of Megiddo or you might want to Google the plain of Esdraelon or Esdraelon, however you might pronounce it. This is a historic battleground that goes back into the Old Testament. Uh, all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, you see uh, great battles were happened there. Uh, Gideon's victory, Sisera's defeat, Saul's last battle at Solomon, uh, the, the chariot fortresses, Jehu's relentless pursuit of Azahiah and the downfall of Jezebel and Josiah. All those took place in this Armageddon location, this valley which has got little hills of Megiddo or the Mount of Megiddo. And that's what John is bearing witness to. So this, that's going to be the location of Armageddon, the Bible says. Now notice that they gathered together for the supper of great God. For the supper of great God. Interesting, a uh, commentator named Newell, he points out four different suppers described in the Bible. You have the Supper of Salvation, which is what Jesus spoke of in Luke 14. You have the Lord's Supper, which is where we have communion together as believers. You have the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which took place earlier in this chapter, you know, when, and when, the, when God's people have joined together. And then you have the Supper of the Great God. Now, we, we, we know from our reading that this Last Supper is, is gruesome, okay, because it's the birds feeding on the flesh of people who uh, came against God. 
And uh, I like what one, one person, the way, he, the way he presented this, he says to you and I, of those four suppers, the Supper of Salvation, the Lord's Supper, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, and the Supper of the Great God. He said, if you reject the first supper, you reject salvation, then the second supper, taking communion, will mean nothing to you. Then you will not be present for the third supper, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. But he does say that everybody who's alive at that time gets to attend at least one of those suppers. But some will eat and others will be eaten at their suppers. In any event, try to take a little sting out of this uh, gruesome passage, verse 18. He says that you may eat. The, he calls the birds, remember the movie The Birds, well, he calls the birds to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them. So you have this great army that's amassed against God, and the an angel simply calls the birds, and the Lord's going to strike them down, and they, just by a word, he's just going to say it, and then with all those dead bodies, and there'll be thousands upon thousands, they're going to allow nature to do what nature does. We see it happen around here all the time with the turkey buzzards. So it includes all of those in the army that have rebelled against God, but also it says the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. If you're aligned with Satan, if you're aligned with the Antichrist, if you're aligned with the false prophet, you are going to be uh, somebody's dinner, is, is what it's going to be, just by the word of the Lord. Remember, we read tonight, Matthew 24, we read this morning, Matthew 24, 27, and 28, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Notice it says, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. I think we miss that part a lot. Because it, does, it alludes not only to his second coming, but this final battle. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. who sat on the horse and against his army. So the birds are invited because they're getting ready to die. They're getting ready to be a mass execution. And John says, I, look, I saw these people, and, and he would be like you and I. Like, why would they think they could take on God? I mean, at this point, the supernatural presence of God is so spectacular, yet they're so stubborn. And it says they, they've got together, and they've gathered together. The earthly powers of Satan are gathered at Armageddon to make war against him who sat on this uh, uh, um, on his horse. Jesus sat on his horse and against his army. Uh, one writer put it this way. This is what you would consider incurable insanity. The incurable insanity of sin, which wars away in spite of defeat after defeat against a holy God. You know, it, even though we're calloused in our day and we've heard all the terrible things, as you go through life, you know, sometimes you just go, man, I, I just can't believe people would do such terrible, horrible things to one another. You know, and so it's, it's because of this incurable insanity of sin and what it does to you and I if, if we let it, if we have no control over it. But notice in verse 20, simple things happen. This is not a long campaign. This is not a long military campaign, okay? Very simply in verse 20, it says, Well, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence... And then they describe what he did, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. You know, they, would, they couldn't buy or sell. They would receive the mark of the beast during the Great Tribulation. But look, it says, these two were cast alive 
into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. These two receive special treatment above all people who will stand before God in judgment because they're the first ones to actually occupy hell, uh, humans that is, and any creature for that matter. The first ones. Later in Revelation, we'll have the great white throne judgment. Later in this, actually in this, in this uh, chapter, which we won't obviously cover today, chapter 20. Not this chapter, but chapter 20. So they were immediately, the, the two ringleaders, two of the three, were taken out of the picture. They're gone. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tactic in battle, is you take out the leaders. Well, Jesus just simply had one of his angels just simply grab them and throw them into the burning lake of fire. But notice what happened. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on a horse. There was no contest. A single word from the Lord. Remember, he spoke this world into existence. He spoke, uh, you know, we talked about the power of Jesus' words in Gethsemane. No contest. A single word from the Lord destroys all of earth's enemies. And then it says, all the birds were filled with their flesh. A very gruesome sight. We're reminded of the word of God throughout Scripture. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6.17, we're instructed by God to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible. Isaiah 11.4 but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So you, you, have to, you cannot deny the fact how, how the word is clearly explained in Scripture. People who criticize a literal interpretation of, of uh, Revelation you know, they try to say, well, what is it? A bunch of like swords flying out of his mouth? Is that what he's going to do? No. It's a symbol of the power of the word of God. And again, it's, it's the word that created the universe. So you don't think he can defeat an army of evil forces? It's the word of God that will save you, writes J. Vernon McGee, and it will be the word of God that will destroy the wicked at the end of the age. commentator named Phillips wrote this. Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul. And instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit, is punctured and still. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall and the vultures will descend and cover the scene. And finally today, folks, we see not only was the 
beast and the false prophet dealt with. But notice in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, Satan is bound for a thousand years. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The bottomless pit is what's considered to be sort of like the spiritual underworld, okay? It exists even, even now. There's, it's not a place called hell or the lake of fire yet. Okay, this is a, a temporary holding cell, if you will. And it says, he laid the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan. So if you can't tell, that's the devil and Satan. I don't know, maybe we can't read. Some people try to deny that too. And this will be, he'll be locked up before the beginning of the millennial reign on earth. And so one more character has been dealt with. And he will be bound for a thousand years. And notice he cast him again into this bottomless pit and shut him up and set seal on him so that he could not receive, or excuse me, deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. You say, well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just send Satan with the false prophet and the beast into the lake of fire once and for all? Well, that's because during the millennial, the time of Jesus' reign on earth, he's going to set up the ideal circumstance for people born in that time. Because everybody's born in sin. He's going to prove that all men are born with the, you know, the sin of Adam stamped on their flesh. And so you're going to, they're going to, there's going to be a time, a period of time, for a thousand years nearly, where uh, there won't be this influence of Satan that we have. We, we couldn't even think of a time in our lives that it's not there, that the influence of the devil isn't there. So he'll be taken out of the picture, and God's going to create an ideal circumstances to prove that man needs to repent of their sin, to prove that men are sinful. They were born sinful. And so God's going to do that, and he's going to, he's going to let that happen for a thousand years, and then I'm not going to go into it today, but there will be one more uh, battle, if you will, that's going to be taking place when Satan will be released from the pit, and he will go around and he will identify those who never really truly repented of their sins. And they will come against God, and then you'll have the final uh, short, very not even a battle there, and then the great white throne judgment will begin, and, and then it goes on from there for eternity. So what we've seen today, um, we're, we're seeing God's divine nature in a different way than we just celebrated yesterday. We're seeing God's divine nature in the form of wrath and anger and we're also, we should be realizing for the present time that God's nature is magnified by his grace and love. In Luke's gospel, he records a time when Jesus was rejected by the people in a Samaritan village as he was making his way through to Jerusalem. And two of his disciples, you may recall the story, two of Jesus' disciples got angry. In Luke 9, 54 and 56, it says, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you not want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So that's what he's doing today. That's, his, that's the mission that he's given unto us, is to go out and reach and seek and save the lost. But notice he says, he didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You have to ask yourself the question, what did he want to save them from? And that's what we're talking about here today in the second coming. 
As we said earlier, postponement of God's wrath is not abolition of God's wrath. And so if a person continually rejects Jesus Christ and the salvation which God has provided to them, they're simply treasuring up wrath upon themselves. You're storing it up against yourself. And one in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so everybody will stand before God and give an account if you haven't uh, surrendered your life to Jesus. Because you're just piling it upon yourself. In the interest of time, we're going to go ahead and conclude our message today. Uh, closing song. I'd just like to, uh, again, uh, thank you guys for this past year. We're going to have a little, you can come up, James, if you want. We're going to have a, probably mid-January, we're going to have a sort of a family meeting, if you will, a gathering. And I'm, I'm going to outline once again, uh, I, I'm tempted not to use the word vision. <laughs> I think it gets overused. But I'm going to be talking about some things in the new year, uh, specifically uh, things that we want to do here as a church to provide opportunities for you to exercise your faith in fellowship together. Uh, not, you know, you're going to be well-fed. You're going to be well-loved, I, I pray, at this church. But we also want to equip you to be able to go out. So as we close the year you know, with that information, I, just, I hope that you'll be spurred on to want to share and make him widely known. Make him widely known just as those shepherds did on the night that Jesus was born. Amen? Lord, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for all the great promises you have. We saw them fulfilled at your first coming, and we know that because of that, they will be fulfilled at your second coming. And so, Lord, we just ask and pray that you will go before us as we finish out this new year and the still sort of the holiday and festive season with our loved ones and friends. Let us also be mindful that uh, you, have a, you have a plan. You, you, maybe it's just some rest. Maybe we just need some downtime to spend with you and to rekindle our love for you. Maybe we just need to start reestablishing the habits that we've had and maybe lost over the busyness of the holidays with daily devotions and time in prayer with you alone, just you and I. Just, just you and us together as individuals, Lord. Whatever it is that, that helps us to kind of get connected with you is so important because when we lose our connection with you, we lose our connection with everyone else. So Lord, I just pray that you would just go before us, be with those again who are on travel this week, those who are coming from long distances away, taking long drives, uh, those who are headed out for more vacation time, today, I would ask for your travel mercies to be upon us and that you would protect us. And for those who are struggling with sickness, illnesses or whatever, Lord, I just pray that you would minister to them and that we would continue to join together to pray for our brothers and sisters in our family, Lord, here in this small, small fellowship that you've given us. So once again, Lord, we ask and pray that you go before us as we continue uh, to conclude our service now. We love you. We just uh, we want to praise you with a word of encouragement. So thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand. We'll read our scripture together and then sing a song. <clears throat> Romans 16, 25, and 27. 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears They laid him down in Joseph's tomb The entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all alone Praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. On the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roll for Christ the King. the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. return in rows of white the blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face 
just the congregation you all sing this oh praise Together, sing it out. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise the name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. Last time. bless you have an awesome week thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book verse by verse line by line God bless